Welcome to Improv Interviews. This is Margot Escott, and in this episode, I'm delighted to introduce you to Dr. Daniel Weiner. Dr. Weiner is the author of Rehearsals for Growth, published in 1994. This technique called RFG is now being used by Dr. Weiner to train thousands of therapists all over the world. It's a very exciting technique and very effective in treatment. We also talk about his family, how he got into improv, and discuss Keith Johnstone's work on status and how that has influenced Dr. Weiner's work. I know you're going to enjoy this episode as much as I did. Hi, Dan. Hi. I hope it isn't as rainy in Massachusetts as it is here in Naples today. Ah, fortunately, we are having uh, almost perfect weather for these parts, uh, 72 and sunny. Oh, I'm really glad for you. Well, I'm so happy we get to talk about your incredible work and in the book Rehearsals for Growth. But I wanted to start with, how did you get an improv? I mean, you're a scientist, a psychologist, an author, researcher, so many hats in the field of psychology, but you got into improvisational theater somehow. I did. And the story of that um, is that I was married to a wonderful actress and acting teacher who unfortunately died in 1998. Uh, her name was Gloria Maddox, and she had gotten involved in improv a few years before I became uh, involved. And as a result of her interest and in her performance, I would have liked to have uh, started even earlier, but uh, I was not considered to be an actor. So I instead wound up being an audience member. And when we moved to Connecticut and took a weekend place there, and this would have been about 1983 or so, um, my uh, interest in it uh, led to her starting an improv class for people that we had met socially, who a lot of whom were in community theater. So as a result of uh, that class, uh, a group of us became perform performers, and we allowed ourselves to consider ourselves to be uh, interested in continuing, and Gloria gave us her blessing and said, go ahead and go start doing some shows. So we found a really sweet little place, the Stony Creek Puppet Theater in Stony Creek, Connecticut, on the Connecticut shore, and wound up uh, doing shows probably... Oh, I would say most Saturdays um, for about six years or so. That was the span of time during which we were performing. And I got to do stage performance, uh, comedy improv, uh, team improvisational theater sports type comedy improv, short form, and loved it. What was uh, particularly attractive to me about it was, and remember, this was just as a hobby at the time, that... Uh, my entire uh, range of characters uh, broadened considerably. I became uh, not only a uh, responsible, intellectual, thoughtful, caring person, but I could be psychotic, I could be mean, I could be silly. And the role expansion, as psych psychodramatists would say, uh, was very freeing. And nobody got hurt. Everybody had a lot of fun. The audience seemed to like it. I enjoyed being on stage. I think I was probably used to doing that from some mu musical uh, performance that I'd done previously and since. So 
improv was very much uh, a hobby and a part of my life. How it happened that I became professionally connected to improv uh, happened as a result of a rather interesting uh, incident where um, a visiting uh, team member uh, from another team uh, worked out with us before Saturday performance. And this fellow and one of the people in our troupe uh, was, uh, you know, we were doing kind of warm up games. Couldn't the two of them couldn't do a scene together? They were just disasters. <laughs> and I was, I, I've had that experience myself with I me. Think we all had that experience <laughs> at least some of the time, but the yeah. two of them regularly seem to fall apart. Uh-huh. And um, so, and either of them, the interesting thing or the remarkable thing that I noticed was that either of them were doing fine with everybody else. So it was just with each other that they seemed to fall apart. And after the performance that night, I started thinking about this and realized I'd seen this before. This was uh, not unusual or completely outside of my experience. Uh, what I was noticing was a parallel with certain couples that I was treating clinically. Um, for for with these couples, uh, each individual partner, when uh, talking to me individually, presented as socially considerate, respectful, and attentive. But when they were interacting in my presence with their partner, they were competitive, they were dismissive, and even hurtful toward each other. So I started to realize that what I'd been seeing uh, in the improv situation was closely parallel to what I had already observed uh, clinically and going on with these uh, with these couples. And I started thinking, what's you know what's the commonality? what why is it that people sometimes seem to be uh, incapable of being civil, of being uh, attentive, of being respectful, and so forth. And that led me to understand that good relationship functioning and good improvising actually have a lot in common. Um, so you need to have cooperation, you need support, you need attention, and you need the generosity to make the other person look good. Um, as a result of this, I started adapting some of the games that we'd been using in in uh, stage performance to working with couples in my clinical practice in New York. And what I found was that uh, there were a number of interesting early developments with this because I found that what people were saying about their relationship and what they actually were manifesting when they uh, interacted with each other um, didn't really square very well. Um, a lot of times people would indicate that they were cooperative or were understanding each other and it turned out when you gave them an improv game or simple game or exercise to to play that they couldn't do it they were uh glaring at each other they were blaming each other when it didn't go well they certainly weren't enjoying it i'm not saying this happened every time but mm -hmm. with certain games it seemed to show up so i started to think of it as an assessment tool that these games and exercise were sort of situational tests that could be used to get at the truth of what was going on in the relationship. And not just for my purposes as, as the clinician, but also for their purposes to realize that some of the uh, advertisement that they'd been uh, giving each other verbally about what was going on didn't correspond very well to the truth. For about a year, I was using it pretty much only for assessment. And then it started to further uh, dawn on me that it was also useful as a way of teaching people the skills that they were deficient in and relating to one another. 
So I started using it in that way in clinical sessions as well and found that combined with other tools and other ways of working that I had already experienced or were using, particularly from psychodrama, that I was able to expand their role repertoire and you know, help them to become other persons than the ones that they were kind of uh, confined to in their interaction with each other. Uh, one thing that I think is harder to realize from inside a relationship is how structured and how unspontaneous people become when they're in the presence of their uh, significant others. There's a lot of there's a lot of scripting that occurs. It's not, of course, the literal scripting of saying the exact same lines, but the emotional patterns become very stereotypical and very limited. So helping people to be free of that opened up their relationship enormously. Can you give some examples of some of the games and exercises you've used, either for assessment or in couple counseling? Sure. Uh, one thing that I would do is a uh, game familiar to many improvisers, um, one word at a time stories. So in that game, uh, two people are telling a story. They usually stand side by side and speak grammatically as though they're one person. So they're telling a story in the collective eye. Uh, and in doing so, uh, they have to each add a word. Each one starts, uh, one starts and then the next one adds a word. And then the first one goes back to adding a word to that until they get to the end of the sentence. Then one person says period. And then this next sentence is formed. And the only rule really is to stay grammatical. When, uh, when people do that, they find that they often run into the situation where somebody, where their partner says a word which was not expected. So the word that they were expecting in their head, because they've already thought up something mm -hmm. uh, well before they actually got to their turn, uh, didn't actually match what was being offered to them. So in the course of that, uh, people get jammed up and they have to, in improv parlance, they have to... Um, accept their partner's offer and put away or to uh, disfavor their own offer, the one that they already had in their own head. And that can be very jamming for some people and leads to some emotional upset, particularly if people think that they ought to do this right or be good at it. Um, and those one word at a time stories often reveal the dynamics of what goes on when things don't go well in a relationship with a couple. So you wrote the book in 1994, and you had worked with many patients by then, I'm assuming, using improv, yeah? Yeah, yeah during that time, I had a full-time uh, private practice in New York City, um, having had an earlier career as a mostly psychology professor, but I was also developing other clinical skills during the time that I was in my private practice, so I learned a number of different modalities of therapy uh, principally family therapy, but also a number of other things at the time. Gee, what what years were you living in the city? Yeah, I was uh, I was a New Yorker. I was grew up in New York, and then I moved away in order to go to school and taught in a number of places out in the Midwest and also in uh, Canada, Prince Edward Island, Canada. Um, then I returned to New York um, after I came back from one of these Midwest teaching jobs and took a job at Ramapo College in New mm -hmm. Jersey. Mm -hmm. And then I went into full-time consulting and private practice. And that was the middle phase of my uh, professional career. Uh, since then, I've uh, moved away from New York. I presently live in 
Massachusetts in Northampton, Massachusetts, and I have a very small private practice at this point, um, but I do a lot of training and consulting in my rehearsals for growth work and have a full-time job as a professor teaching marriage and family therapy at Central Connecticut State University. And we're going to talk more about your training therapist in RFG, but on a personal note, I'm just wondering if I was in New York City when you had a practice there, because, boy, I wish I had gone to see you for a therapist back then. <laughs> <laughs> Might have introduced me to improv much earlier. Yes. Well, my patients my patients were a little startled, but uh, most of them were game. I found that over time, if assuming that you're selective about uh, only offering it to people who are not in crisis or where there is abuse or some other uh, very, uh, you know, serious consequences of people being unguarded initially in therapy, um, that it works rather well. And uh, over time, once clients trust you, um, it becomes uh, much more feasible for them to start uh, uh, trying out and benefiting from using uh, improv in therapy. I call it rehearsals for growth, as you mentioned the name of the book. Uh, and the word rehearsals in the title, Rehearsals for Growth, uh, is, ref is referring to how uh, in improv, especially stage improv, but also the kind I do in therapy, everything that's done performatively is really understood as being non-consequential, meaning, you know, this doesn't really count. This isn't for real. This is just a rehearsal. So you might learn from it and take something away from it that you like. You might say, boy, I'll never do that again and, uh, and leave it there. Um, but the, the growth that comes from just exploring and trying out new things and breaking routines is itself uh, very beneficial therapeutically. Now, you've been training. Tell us a little bit more about your training program that you offer for therapists. Sure. Well, I started this uh, some years probably about four years after I started learning improv myself and during the time I was still performing, I realized that there were other therapists who were uh, curious about this, some of whom had seen performances and some of whom had heard about it through word of mouth. And I started offering some training and that training uh, in New York City was um, offered uh, sort of sporadically. There was you know, not a, a really training, regular training program. Uh, but later on, I developed it into a training program. And when I moved up to Connecticut and took the job um, at Central Connecticut State, uh, I had a cadre of students who were interested in taking more extensive training. And I started offering about a 60-hour direct instruction in rehearsals for growth. And to the present day, I still have that as a certificate training program. There are a few differences in the format in which I offer it than the way I used to, which I needn't get into, but it's all, all that information is on my website, which is the Rehearsals for Growth website, which um, has a great deal of background information as well as other current uh, activities, which are part of the Rehearsals for Growth world. And also on your website is how people can get your DVD on Rehearsals for Growth that you've produced. It's a beautiful DVD, a great example of how your work works. Yes. I just love it. I've seen it several times. I find it very helpful. Good. I'm glad you did. Yes. You know, one of the things we, we've talked about was therapists making mistakes. I know my eyes were open years ago when I read a book by Jeff Kotler called The Imperfect Therapist. And yes. I know I have made mistakes and, you know, I've been doing this for 34 years now and I know that there's been some errors. Can you speak to any maybe mistakes you've ever made? Uh, don't want to put you on spot too much, but 
No, I, I've, <laughs> I've made, I've made my share of mistakes, or maybe more than my share. I don't want to be greedy about it, but um, <laughs> I, I guess they're mistakes in different categories. Um, there are there are mistakes you make in performance, there are mistakes you make in life, and then there are kind of some professional mistakes. So do you have a favorite category? <laughs> well, I was thinking about professional mistakes, and I think it helps young clinicians, too, to know that even though we may have been doing this a long time, there were certain things that we wish we hadn't done, for example, or could have done better, but mm -hmm. in the professional setting. One thing, one thing that came up fairly early when I started uh, using improv in therapy, uh, and it you know, it took me some time before I kind of got it right, or at least improved over the way that I had started out, was that I underestimated seriously the uh, demand characteristics of improvising on civilians of people who had never done this stuff and hadn't signed up to, to try it. Um, it's different if you put yourself in harm's way, so to speak, uh, <laughs> by signing up for an improv class or joining an improv troupe, you're obviously putting yourself out there before an audience. But a lot of people are very shy um, or are very reluctant uh, and fearful of having themselves uh, presented in a way that they have uh, or feel they have much less control over the way they present themselves. So the tendency for people is to hang back or to be critical or to get shut down. And in the beginning, I really treated this as sort of a kind of resistance to therapy. And I realized after a short while that the resistance was really uh, not something that should be taken as being something that was faulty on the part of the clients, but was a natural reaction of theirs to wanting to preserve some control and dignity over their own lives. So for people to improvise, as you know, as a performer, as well as uh, as a therapist, uh, people who perform improv put themselves in a place where they are being at risk of looking foolish or uh, being seen as failing in front of other people in a way that is not so easily tolerated by people who didn't sign on for that particular adventure. So a lot of my early mistakes were about that. And I recall a couple of cases where I almost got into arguments with clients that they could do it if they, if they only let go and <laughs> only did it worse. Then we got, into a, <laughs> then we got into, a, into a kind of a contest where it was like, I know better and I know it's good for you kind of thing. And it was, you know, the kid being uh, having such spinach shoved down his throat kind of thing. It's good for you. <laughs> so I realized that that was the entirely wrong way to go about introducing Wow. Did did they come back again after the argument? Well, a few of them didn't. I think um, <laughs> that that also taught me a lesson. <laughs> well, and I know sometimes, you know, I used to feel like I knew so much, and the older I get, the less I know. I think, but that right. being superior to the client because of our knowledge and education and whatever, and I try to see us more as, you know, people. I'm helping with some challenges they're facing. I may have some suggestions and ideas, but I learn a lot from my clients as well. Well, this that leads me or reminds me to add that uh, the best thing that I learned to do in that kind of situation was to model failing myself in front of clients. When I would do an exercise and I would screw up, I would be showing them, first of all, that I wasn't afraid of it. Second of all, that nobody's perfect and that it, you don't have to be perfect in order to be okay or to be 
to enjoy it or to learn from it. And lastly, that um, you can have uh, a constructive or a positive or a cheerful attitude about failing. Most people beat themselves up. Uh, you see that with kids, for example, in class. They're, they're socialized in school to uh, act as though if, if they're called on by the teacher and the teacher, uh, you know, has them answer a question or something that they don't know the answer to, the behavior of the student on the spot in that moment often is to look miserable, <laughs> is, is to kind of screw up their mm -hmm. face or to mm -hmm. be very hangdog or physically to kind of shrink down and so forth. It's, it's almost as though uh, if you punish yourself, then the teacher can't do anything right. further to you. Yeah. And uh, that, that behavior really is a trained attitude. We, we learn to do that, I think, partly out of self-protection, but it also is self-learning. It, it teaches us that failure is something to be avoided. Whereas if you're cheerful about it and you say, wow, I screwed up that time, that's no, you know, isn't that, yeah, isn't that yeah. crazy? Um, it's, it's a revelation and it's very freeing. Absolutely. Now, you talked about the seven signs of good improv. Could you tell me some of those signs or maybe all seven signs? <laughs> yeah, this was actually in my, in my book, Rehearsals for Growth. Um, and I came upon that as a result of, um, you know, a lengthy uh, amount of experience with it. I even did some uh, more formal assessment of this as part of some research at a later time. But the characteristics are as follows. And I actually have the list in front of me for some reason. Good. <laughs> um, so, so one of them is called clear boundaries, um, which means that um, where is it safe and where is it permissible to play and what things are off limits? Um, so being clear about that provides safety and respect and it makes it possible. It's sort of uh, the emotional analog to the physical stage, just like certain things can happen on stage that are taken as being okay because they're part of a play, um, things that are okay in the play space, meaning the imaginal realm where people are permitted to uh, do things outside of their ordinary character, um, are understood. So having clear boundaries around that is important. That's one. Um, another one is what I call balanced contribution. Um, so this means give and take. It means that one person isn't doing all the work or the heavy lifting or is taking all the chances and the other person is sort of a bystander or a sidekick. Uh, both people are kind of adding to or participating mutually. And I'm saying two people. Obviously, this can apply to larger collectives, but all, many of my ex examples are dyadic or two-person examples here. Um, another one is um, going into an accepting character, particularly when it's offered to you by someone else. So um, if you fully accept character, um, you allow yourself to be uh, generously accepting the offer that the other player is giving you. Um, whereas if you start to be choosy about it or critical of the fact you didn't give me the, the role that I wanted, you didn't um, treat me the way that I intend to be or expect to be treated, um, you have good improvising when there's acceptance of that, when people start to insist on playing their character only one way or in blocking offers to, to be uh, some other kind of character. That's not such a good sign of improvising, good improvising. So that's three. Um, another one is um, allowing yourself to physicalize in a grounded way corresponding to what's going on and using your full experience 
emotional or expressive range rather than just kind of robotically or in a in a kind of caricature of one particular kind of character limiting yourself in that way so uh, good improvising allows for uh, things to go pretty much anywhere and kind of related to that um, having strong character as you know as a stage improviser um, what happens is that uh, people tend to go blank and that's when they uh, stop functioning. They become either self-conscious or uh, break character in order to uh, go back to being themselves or to maybe apologize to the audience or something of this kind. Um, they may blame other people, but allowing yourself to have and hold your character is really uh, part of good improvising. You're going on the adventure fully rather than uh, being willing to check out at any obstacle that you encounter. Um, probably the most important one, um, sixth one here, is that um, people have a positive experience of it. And a lot of that is what you make of it. I recall on another, in another context, I recall going on a camping trip once uh, as a counselor. I was taking a group of campers together with some other counselors to, uh, to a hike and an overnight, and it rained practically in biblical <laughs> 40 days yeah. and nights and we were totally rained out and it was just, from the point of view of the uh the camping adventure it was you know pretty unsuccessful uh but we stayed up most of the night because nobody could get any sleep everything was completely soaked and the rain kept pouring down and we were picked up by a truck the next morning and went back to the camp and by the time we were on the truck we were singing and we came back and we were kind of heroes to the other campers for having survived this <laughs> and it became one of those stories where it wasn't so much fun at the time but later on it was the kind of thing that kind of hey you remember the time when kind of thing you know so i think having a positive outcome is partly a question of your attitude it's really not what what happens so much as how you frame it including later on and the last characteristic of good improvising is um allowing the first idea to be offered to be the idea that you go with rather than being picky or choosing or starting to improve upon it by having your editing function and work in play to try to make it quote better unquote which actually isn't better uh, as Keith Johnstone, my uh, glorious teacher and also my teacher later on pointed out, he said, you know, the first offer is really the best offer. And I've followed that and that has turned out to be uh, a successful uh, way of going about both stage improvising and also the application of it uh, to working in therapy. What a gift to have studied with Keith Johnstone. I know his material yes. on status is something I'd like to discuss with you, but can you tell me a little bit about what he was like and how it was studying with him? Yes, well, um, he had come a number of times to New York um, when at Gloria's invitation. She had put together workshops for him to come, and I had been in some of those workshops, and uh, I haven't actually been in touch with him in recent years, um, but uh, his work... Uh, in the book Impro, which was how Gloria learned about improvisational uh, work in the theater, uh, fascinating and still a classic book in the field. Um, and that was written about 1982 or so. Keith is, in person was a very uh, offhand, kind of jovial sort of person, British, so he obviously was 
you know, had that accent and that air about him. But he was very cheerful and he always was insightful about what was going on. He was very aware of everything going on in the moment. And many of his uh, ideas uh, worked themselves into my thinking. And as a result, my work, Rehearsals for Growth, really is the application of, largely the application of his work uh, to, the, to therapy, I would say. I have an interview in the beginning of the book with him as part of, uh, part of that book. Uh, I later studied in Calgary at the uh, Loose Moose Theater. Uh, he ran a two-week uh, improvisational uh, school there, uh, which an intensive uh, training, which Gloria and I went out to in, I think, 1993. And that was very helpful as well. Well, his book is fantastic, and if anybody doesn't have a copy of Impro and they're an improviser, I highly suggest they get it. Now, you you right. also know, and I'm not sure if you've worked, with one of the fathers of improv, David Shepard. Yes. I've known David in New York, actually, and Keith and David uh, met in New York, and I was there when, when they were meeting. Um, David had his own parallel track, having been one of the co-founders of the Compass Theater, which was the origins in Chicago of, of improvisation, theatrical improvisation in uh, this country, um, following and building on the work of uh, uh, Paul Sills, uh, who was the collaborator with David Shepard and whose mother was Viola Spolin. Uh, so uh, David is somebody who I live very close to, up here in Massachusetts, and I'm a friend of his. He's now 92 years old, and uh, getting a little getting a little creaky now. But he's definitely has a sharp mind and is a very wonderful and inventive person. I also worked with him on a number of projects, um, starting about maybe 15 years ago. Um, he had boundless energy and enthusiasm for different new forms of uh, improvisational uh, practice. So we did a number of uh, projects together. We would film improvisational scenes in people's homes. Uh, we would uh, do sort of political cabaret theater. Um, we did a, a project which is still, I think, somewhat in existence uh, called uh, the uh, Movie Experience, which was filming a an amateur movie over in, over one weekend with a group of people that just came together for doing that, and uh, which is very involving. I wrote a foreword to his book uh, on that subject. Um, so David is a friend and somebody who I have uh, learned a great deal from as well. Well, I've been looking again at the documentary about David, which is so brilliant. And the fact <sighs> that in the beginning, he was kind of like, this is for the people. This is for the workers. It, it was... You know, it was well. He had a very political. His early, his earlier work absolutely was was uh, motivated by, by that uh, uh, political fervor of wanting to bring theater to the masses and also bringing about social transformation, bringing about change through improvisation. It was not uh, purely for entertainment purposes. And that may be why he separated with certain groups because their focus was different than his. Their direction was different than his, perhaps. I think so. And, yeah. I but there, so. there's all, of course, Viola Spolin was trained by Neva Boyd, the social worker at Hull House. So yes. there's such a long connection between therapeutic, 
therapeutic improv that it just continues. But David's contribution has been incredible. I just wondered, did Keith Johnstone also do Viola Spolin work, or did he create his own thing? Uh, Keith's work originated, I believe, uh, in his work at, in the um, uh, British Theatre in the Royal Dramatic Academy. And uh, he was part of a group of writers early on who uh, discovered that it was more important and more generative of new ideas and fruitful op opportunities on stage to enact everything rather than to simply describe it or talk about it. So that became the foundation for what he developed into Rehearsals for Growth. I'm not sure what his connection, if any, was with Viola Spolin um, in those in those early years. I rather think he developed it somewhat independently. You know, I think he did too, because I've researched quite a bit and I haven't found a real connection there. But I know that in the improv movement, if I can call it that, there were synergistic things happening. You know, Keith was opening something in L.A. and David was doing something someplace else. And there just seemed to be a lot of things popping up, as there are today. There's so many styles and forms and all of that today. And, and we're yep. going to be at a workshop, a conference together in September, which is very exciting. And I, I agree. I, I find myself excited, too. It's the first time, to my knowledge, that uh, people who have uh, an interest in the application of improv to theater are coming together to share what they got and what they're interested in going on to doing collaboratively after That's that. It's going to be fantastic. Now, we talked uh, in the past about some games you've played with your grandchildren and could you share that a little bit because i love that story <laughs> yeah i have uh i have uh, four grandchildren and um i have a wonderful relationship with them particularly with the three girls um i'll tell you a quick story about okay. each of them great <laughs> so my my uh oldest uh, granddaughter who is uh, 14 um she's about to start high school and she is um herself interested in improvisation she took some kind of a course on it so the two of us at a family gathering put on a little improv show for the uh, for the rest of the family and everybody was uh, quite impressed and one of the things i'll just mention is that she made very bold <laughs> which i which i was really not i didn't see her that way as as being capable of being quite that worldly and quite that out there but she's wow, good for her <laughs> yeah then with my middle granddaughter, uh, uh, who uh, is now nine, but particularly when she was younger, um, we would have a game where when I would see her after coming to her on trip, she lives in Texas, um, and uh, so I wouldn't see her that frequently, but probably about three, four times a year, um, she would um, uh, be asking me after a while, after I had introduced the game to her, um, whether we could... Um, whether we could play the hand game. And the hand game was that there would be one of my hands was uh, unexpectedly would reach out and start tickling her. And uh, the hand was a character and a very untrustworthy character that she had to be on guard about. So we had long conversations about, about the hand and how to, how to deal with it and so forth. But of course, at the most unexpected moment, the hand would suddenly reach out and start tickling <laughs> her. So, so we developed this, the, the bad hand, as we called it, and the other hand was the good hand. And uh, she would ask me after a while, uh, when I would first uh, uh, come to Texas to visit, she would say, you didn't, Grandpa Dan, you didn't bring the hand with you, did you? <laughs> and I said, well, 
Well, no, I, I, I didn't bring it, but you know, it might've sneaked into my luggage when I wasn't looking, you know, so <laughs> sure enough, the hand would come out and would show up. So then after a while we developed subplots off of that. The, uh, uh, now the other hand became sometimes corrupted by the bad Ooh. hand. And that one hand would start Ooh. tickling sometimes, but that hand would be much more apologetic. And of course, she got to beat up the hand that was tickling her. So that's <laughs> part of it. Um, the other story uh, was about my youngest grandchild, the one who lives in California, who I also don't see, unfortunately, too often, although I did see her recently again. And um, with her, we uh, developed a game on a recent family trip. And that game was where I had taken her aside and confidentially informed her that I was invisible to everybody else in the family except her. So she absorbed that information. She's not quite five. And uh, what she would do would be to uh, announce to other people that she could see me. And other fem members of the family picked up on this and started acting like I was invisible and marveling that she could be floating in the air, uh, you know, in these mysterious ways and was, uh, uh, you know, able to hear voices and, you know, talk to somebody who wasn't there and she loved it. She just absolutely got into the whole idea that she, A, had the special power to see me and B, to be the, the one who could explain me to other people. That <laughs> Tell other people what, what we were doing or what we were thinking and so forth. That is such a delightful story. I'm visualizing it and it's just a wonderful story. Well, Dan, thank you so much for all of your time and, and, discussing your work, and I hate to say the words, but you are kind of an elder statesman now in improv, having trained with masters. I have to accept that. There's, 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 my inner child never grew up. So. Oh, neither did mine either. Neither did mine either. I, I still think I'm 18, but I'm not going to be 18 on my next birthday, I'm afraid. But, um, <clears throat> but people will be able to find you through the links on this interview and find out more about your training and your work. And... I just wonder if you have any, some words of wisdom maybe for people that are starting out in therapy world and might want to explore this improv thing. Well, I would say uh, you did an interview with uh, Asael uh, Romanelli, and uh, he's actually done some research where he trained therapists um, under slightly more uh, uh, structured or research conditions, and then interviewed them extensively to find out what they had changed about their therapy. And his findings closely parallel those that I've observed over training therapists for many years, which is that it's very freeing. It opens up your own spontaneity as a therapist. Um, it allows you to deal with the unexpected in the moment. Um, it creates a whole different attitude or uh, bond between you and your clients when you go on those adventures. And I highly recommend that people at least try it and see if uh, they discover the benefits that I think uh, do come from that kind of practice. And I highly recommend that therapists really consider taking your RFG training. They will learn so much. Yes. It will be a wonderful experience for them. Well, thank you. I'll add that the next, before yes. we end, I just wanted to say that uh, the, next, uh, the next training I'll be doing is in the Hartford, Connecticut area. We'll be on um, 
the 4th and 5th of November, and it will be instead of a regular training weekend, we're going to have a conference this year, which is going to be with different presenters on different to applied topics in the improv world. And I haven't yet changed my website, but in the next week I will do so, and more information will be available on that conference there. Oh, that's fantastic. I know you're a member of AIN, a a Applied yep. Improvisation Network, mm -hmm. and that's a great organization as well. Well, once again, thank you so much. It's been so delightful speaking with you. And thank you, Margo. Thank you for doing this. I think your uh, your interest in bringing this general area of improv and therapy to the attention of the larger world has been commendable. Well, thank you. Goodbye, Dan. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>